It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Some really interesting topics on the agenda for this week, including I'm just looking at some CTV reporting from this morning. It was reported last night that some items believed to have come from shipping containers lost on the MV Zim Kingston in rough seas had washed up on Vancouver Island beaches. As of this morning, I'm seeing photographs of a number of what appear to be refrigerators and other uh, consumer goods seemingly battered by the wave action now washing up on the beach. An opportunity time to talk about how salvage law works here in Canada. What is the story? Indeed. Who, who would not want a uh, saltwater-soaked refrigerator pulled <laughs> out of a container crate that fell off a burning ship? You, you can well imagine how there'd be a high demand for these, right? Uh, maybe, maybe the yoga mats, they could be scrubbed down or something. <laughs> I was just going to say, but, Vancouver Island, the yoga mats on the beach were on brand at least. Yeah, that's right. Maybe we can induce some demand to uh, head to the beaches to <laughs> go for the yoga bath. So I, I had a good question emailed to me by a, a listener to the show, and uh, I did what any good uh, criminal lawyer does when asked a, a question about a uh, complex and uh, esoteric uh, bit of the law. I phoned a friend. Excellent. Uh, and then I, so I, I had a great uh, conversation with uh, Darren Williams, who's a principal at League and Williams here in Victoria. Yes. Uh, and one of his areas of, of expertise is marine law, and he's actually published more than one article on the topic of salvage. And so uh, there's a very interesting uh, body of law uh, surrounding that very topic. The bad news, I suppose, uh, is that it is not a yoga mat free-for-all. Um, the starting point would be, of course, when something falls off of a ship, it doesn't just magically become, uh, uh, you know, who can get to it first, right? If, if your yoga mat blows off of the back of the BC ferry, uh, it's not a matter of who can go over and grab it first. <laughs> you don't lose ownership over your yoga mat because it's blown off of the ship. Indeed. It remains the property of the person whose property it was. And so... Uh, there, there's no uh, magic if you find, you know, the uh, shipping container, uh, you know, run up aground by the octopus at Cabra Bay Beach or something. It remains the property of the, uh, you know, whoever owned the container crate. And so you're not permitted to uh, go in and open it and see what you could get out of it. In fact, uh, that could wind up being um, uh, actionable as what's called a trespass to chattels. And really? so huh. uh, not only would it be potentially unwise because it would be like a really high stakes version of uh, let's make a deal where you might wind up with some paddle boards or you might wind up with a bunch of flaming industrial chemicals <laughs> if you were to open the thing up. So in addition to being a poor idea, uh, it could actually be actionable. And so you, you can't uh, just legally go into the container crate and see what you might find. Interesting. What you should be doing is you should be calling the Coast Guard and reporting it, right? You can say, look, I've spotted this thing, um, and so they could come and deal with it. Now, that isn't to say there isn't the concept of salvage. There is. Um, it's just not going to apply to the uh, container crate where the owner of the container crate is looking for it, and we know who owns the container crate. It's pretty obvious, right, if you found a container crate with uh, yoga mats falling out of it. It's not a mystery where that came from. It obviously fell off the Zim Kingston, right? Indeed. There aren't many and other so, container ships that we know of losing containers at the moment, so yes. Right. And so just like the yoga mat that blows off the back of the BC Fury with your name written on it, right, it's not a free-for-all. It's still their container crate, right? And yes. so 
your obligation would be to call them and let them know, hey, <laughs> your yoga mat container crate's here. Come get it. But there are circumstances where a person would have the right or the ability to salvage something. Uh, and the law surrounding that is interesting, intricate, and has been worked on for many years, right? Mm. Um, and in Canada, we have a, a, an individual, uh, well, more than one actually, mm-hmm. uh, referred to as the receiver of REC. Huh. Uh, and a, the receiver of REC is somebody appointed under the federal Wrecked, Abandoned, and Hazardous Vessels Act. And I must say, I'll pause there to say, you know, when you go into a kindergarten class and you look around and you think, okay, who here is going to be a firefighter? Who's going to turn out to be the shop owner when they grow up? Probably none of the kids were thinking, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be the receiver of wreck. <laughs> but indeed, we have such individuals in Canada. Um, and so the concept there, and it's a requirement under that act that I mentioned, yes. is that if you come across a uh, wreck, which could be a vessel, a ship, a boat, aircraft, or indeed anything that was part of those things, or like a container crate fell off it, right? Mm-hmm. Which is in distress, derelict, aground, partially sunk, whatever it might be. Before you start, uh, you know, going into the container crate to see whether you've got some flaming industrial chemicals or not, you first of all have an obligation uh, to determine who the owner of the thing is, if that's possible, and to contact them, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, I see your container crate of yoga mats is here, right? Uh, And to get some permission to be able to uh, salvage it, for example, right? So, in the modern world, of course, that's going to be much easier than it once was, right? Yes. At some point in the 1900s, if you came upon a, a a vessel, well, there's no cell phone, you're not quite sure who it is, but you've got some container crate with a number printed on the side of it, you're not going to have too much trouble figuring that out. But if you can't figure out who you should be contacting to get permission to do something like salvage, like save something from sinking or getting washed back out to sea, what you're obliged to do is contact the receiver of wreck, right? They hmm. call them up and say, look, hey, I've come across this whatever, vessel, container, crate, whatever it might be, um, and to advise them uh, of that before you start taking action to salvage something. And the concept of salvage isn't sort of the finder's keeper's rule, right? It's a bit more sophisticated than that. Yeah. The reason for that concept of salvage is the idea of preserving things that would otherwise be lost, not just, you know, finding the container creative poker tables and making off with a bunch of them or something. The, the idea is, for example, let's say you were out in the middle of the ocean and there's a container crate bobbing around, right? Yes. A person might reasonably be able to say, look, I'm going to, I don't know who this is, right? I can't tell. I'm in the middle of the ocean. Take steps to salvage it. That is to say, you know, prevent the thing from sinking to the bottom of the ocean or getting run over by another ship or whatnot. And so you would be lawfully entitled in that scenario, for example, to take steps to preserve the thing, like drag it to shore. Um, And if you do that, right, you're actually taking steps to prevent the thing from being lost. You would then still have an obligation to get in touch with the owner right, or absent the owner, the receiver of wreck, hello, I've dragged to shore a container crate that was about to go down 500 miles offshore. Great, good for you. What you would then wind up with uh, would be a salvage lien on the thing that you've saved from going to the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. Um, And ultimately, that could entitle you uh, to payment in compensation for the work that you've done to preserve the thing which otherwise would have been lost. 
And ultimately, if you couldn't figure out, and the receiver of rec couldn't figure out whose this was, you might, in fact, wind up being entitled to it, right? Let's say there was just a vessel. We couldn't figure out who owned the thing. It was genuinely abandoned, you know, that we couldn't contact anyone. Ultimately, you might get it. Or if you found out who owned it, oh, well, great, okay, you rescued that fishing boat that everyone jumped off of, what you may be entitled to would be compensation for your efforts in saving the thing, right? You hauled it to shore and preserved it and prevented it from sinking. Hmm. Um, and in fact, you get a, a fairly high sort of priority right in terms of the value of that thing, because otherwise the concept would be, well, presumably it was going to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. And what you might be entitled to is going to be a function of sort of the uh, effort somebody would have put into preserving it. And so, you know, saying, hey, I found the thing hooked up on the octopus in the uh, Cabra Bay play area is not going to entitle you to, well, anything, right? No. But if it was like, look, I managed to save this boat that was otherwise crashing against the rocks, and by great effort, I managed to, you know, haul it to shore and preserve it, and it's worth a lot of money, uh, ultimately, you may well be entitled to either the vessel, if we couldn't figure out whose it was, or the wreck, um, or compensation uh, for your efforts in preventing the loss. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I must say, having learned about all of this from Darren, it's a nice little area of the law in the sense that it sort of accords with, I think, broadly, what people would think would be a fair outcome for these things, right? Yes. Where it, the law doesn't encourage the, you know, everyone dive on the pile of yoga mats that washed <laughs> up on the beach. That would be undesirable. No, no. Right? But on the other hand, you know, if somebody's genuinely taking efforts to you know, prevent something from being lost forever... The law recognizes that uh, and would provide for compensation for it. And we'd want that to happen because we don't want, you know, something sinking to the bottom of the ocean or the boat just being left out there, which might be the effect if there wasn't any mechanism uh, for compensation, right? Mm, yes. You wouldn't want somebody saying, forget it. I'm not going to spend two days hauling this, you know, container from the middle of the ocean to shore. Uh, why would I, right? I, I'll get nothing from it. So, you want to have a state of affairs where there would be some compensation for doing that. The law is designed to recognize that, uh, but it's not designed to have everyone pounce on anything that might be lost. Doing that would sort of be like, you know, picking up the wallet with ID and money and running away with it. Uh, that's not allowed. No. Uh, and so the short uh, advice would be if you come across the container crate, uh, don't open it up. Uh, instead, you should, with respect to these particular ones, your obligation would be call the Coast Guard. It's pretty clear who they belong to. Uh, and uh, Darren even provided, helpfully, the number for the Coast Guard, which is 1-800-889-8852. So if you find a container crate or a bunch of yoga mats, give them a call, and the uh, Zim Kingston people can uh, come get them if they want. Very well, and please pass on our thanks to Darren Williams, uh, Principal at League and Williams, for this information, Michael. It's been very helpful. Indeed, and if people are interested, it may be worth, if you go to the League and Williams uh, website, which you can Google, uh, you'll see a whole series of articles that Darren's written on marine law topics, including more than one on specifically on the topic of salvage. So lots of good information there. Fascinating. All right, let's take our first break. Legally Speaking will continue with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers in just a moment. 
Back to Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, I'm looking at the agenda here, and I am excited to see that yesterday, October 27th, is duty or was duty council day. What is duty council? I hear that term come up from time to time with respect to the criminal justice system and people needing a lawyer and there isn't one available. How does it all work? Yes, indeed. And, you know, I must say I was the other weekend out at uh, Costco, as I'm apt to be on the weekend, uh, and, uh, well, it was exciting to see all of the uh, Halloween and Christmas decorations. There was not a single duty council day decoration <laughs> to be found. But, indeed, yesterday was National Duty Council Day, and it deserves mention. Um, duty council plays a really important role in the justice system, criminal, family, and otherwise. Hmm. Uh, and duty council in British Columbia, for example, they would be lawyers in private practice who have agreed for a very modest uh, fee uh, to spend their day or week um, up uh, at the uh, courthouse uh, helping people uh, who uh, can't afford counsel or don't have a lawyer and would otherwise be left standing there on their own with no one to give them any advice or help at all, mm. uh, which is sadly all too common uh, because there are all kinds of people that can't afford a lawyer and for whom uh, legal aid is unavailable. Um, so when somebody shows up at the uh, courthouse of that example, let's say somebody's got a criminal charge or they show up there for a family matter and they're just on their own, mm-hmm. there would often be uh, one of these lawyers who's uh, agreed to serve as duty counsel there to speak to the person for the purpose of providing them sort of immediate advice they might require or helping them, for example, if they were pleading guilty, helping them do that in the criminal context or in the family context, uh, helping somebody maybe negotiate a resolution with the other uh, party, you know, for example, on, you know, uh, spousal support or child support or some other important issue. Um, And so they play a really important frontline role in just making the justice system function. Uh, because without lawyers serving in that role as duty counsel, um, you would have uh, many more people with no legal advice at all and no one to help them at all in court. And so, well, the availability of duty counsel is no substitute for a person having a, a lawyer who can actually deal with the case in a more fulsome way. Um, it's important that we have that, right? It, it's sort of like having the uh, emergency room doctor there to provide some help when you get wheeled in with the knife sticking out of your back. Yes. Um, you know, it's no substitute for having a proper uh, surgeon or a doctor to sort of follow up and assist you with that. Uh, but you're sure a whole lot better off with the emergency room doctor there helping get the knife out and sew you up uh, than you would be with no one at all. Uh, And so yesterday was a day to recognize the contribution that duty council make all across the country. Most of them are uh, doing it for very low pay and out of uh, obligation to the profession and the public to ensure that there is help uh, available. Yes. And so people should know that there are duty council who are often uh, available at the courthouse. Um, Things have been uh, a little topsy-turvy during COVID with more things moving to an online format. Oh, yes. Um, And so there's also been provision for duty council services to be provided in some cases by MS Teams or or Zoom or uh, uh, by telephone. And so if somebody's wanting to find out uh, if and where duty council might be uh, available, uh, there's a number people can call, and that number is one 866 Five seven seven two five two five, and you'd be able to find information out about. Look, when I show up for my 
family court matter, is there going to be somebody there who might be able to give at least some advice about what I'm doing or signing uh, before I wind up going into court? So there we are. Maybe by next year, uh, Costco will have some suitable, you know, tiny criminal codes with lights on them or barrister's robes or something you could hang around your hang up in your house free halloween to make sure that you're you know appropriately celebrating national duty council day national duty council day now we know um we've got about six and a half minutes left in the segment today two other matters of interest on the agenda do we have time for both oh well let's see how far we get let's start with the uh the injunction i think that's one people should know about yes um, so this was a case or a injunction decision that uh, came out of uh, Hope. It was just uh, made a few days ago, and it involved there a restaurant uh, which was failing to check if people were properly vaccinated uh, before allowing them to come in for table service in the restaurant. Um, and people noticed, and they complained, um, and as a result, the Fraser Health Authority went and conducted a site visit and observed that, yes, indeed, they weren't checking people. Mm. They gave the restaurant a ticket. In fact, they came back and gave them more than one ticket. The restaurant continued to uh, engage in that behavior. And so ultimately, uh, the health official uh, responsible uh, served them with an order to close the restaurant until they made arrangements to start checking people and uh, the uh, municipal government there revoked their business license. The restaurant persisted, not having gotten the hint, uh, and so kept being served with fines each and every day they were operating without a business license. And so with all of that effort put in to try to get compliance, uh, ultimately uh, the health authority uh, and the doctor, uh, who was the health officer there, went to the B.C. Supreme Court uh, and applied for and received uh, a, an injunction uh, ordering uh, that the restaurant be closed. Um, and indeed, the Public Health Act in British Columbia has a statutory scheme to go to a Supreme Court judge, which is what the health officer did here, mm-hmm. to obtain one of these statutory injunctions ordering uh, a facility closed. And so that's exactly what's happened uh, in this case. Uh, the other thing which is of interest there is there was a debate about whether there should be what's referred to as an enforcement uh, provision or a police enforcement provision entered into the order. And that's to say, should there be a specific part of the court order that directs, for example, the RCMP to go enforce this order, right? Mm. And it's been a matter of debate over the years, and different judges seem to take a different approach to whether that is a necessary component of a court order like this. This particular, this judge uh, came to the conclusion that it wasn't appropriate to add a specific order to the RCMP. In fact, I should say they concluded it wasn't necessary or appropriate, and they referenced the fact that the RCMP are sworn to uphold the law, and they have clearly an obligation to enforce injunctions without the need to specifically order them to enforce injunctions, right? Interesting. The judge's view would be like, you know, the criminal code says you shall not assault people, you don't need to then have a provision that says, and if somebody is assaulted, RCMP go and arrest the person for committing an assault. Right? Indeed. You sort yes. of have an obligation to do that. And so the judge said it's not necessary to include that um, unless there's some indication that the police aren't doing what they're uh, lawfully obliged to do anyways. And so it's an example of how these things will play out if some business thinks that uh, they can just uh, uh, ignore the uh, obligation to do what's required of them. 
uh, not only will it result in fines, ultimately the outcome is likely to be uh, an order shutting the business down completely. Um, and so that's what's occurred in hope. So hopefully people get the message. It's interesting. One of the things that you've helped us understand, Michael, is that the justice system will very seldom engage in high-handed behavior with respect to punishments. They will tell you no, and then if you keep doing it, you'll get a little punishment, then a bigger one, then a bigger one, then a bigger one. Then if you persist in doing it, there's a gradient of various censures that they can impose upon you. They will get compliance eventually, and they'll just keep ratcheting up the pressure until they get it. But they will do so in a reasonable and deliberate manner instead of just sort of going off uh, uh, like in some manner that would uh, make the justice system seem like it's it's volatile because it's not. You're exactly right and the other thing which was apparent here is that all of the various people involved with this prior to bringing the matter to court even uh, did their level best to try to just get the restaurant to start checking people to make sure that they were vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that started with uh, issuing tickets, issuing other tickets, uh, right? They persisted in it, uh, taking away their business license. They persisted in it. And only after multiple efforts to try to get them to just do what they were uh, obliged to do, uh, did the matter wind up getting to the point where uh, they went to court uh, seeking this kind of order. The other interesting thing about it is that We've heard, we've talked about, and we've all heard about injunctions in other contexts, yes, right? Uh, yes. You know, the logging injunction, for example. Oh, yes. Yep. And the BC Supreme Court has got inherent jurisdiction to issue injunctions to ensure that there's compliance in circumstances like that. With respect to this particular kind of injunction, it's actually a different kind called a statutory injunction. Interesting. Where the Public Health Act expressly provides that the Supreme Court has authority to grant an injunction when somebody is, for example, breaching uh, orders like this. And so it's an example of a slightly different kind of uh, injunction than might be granted in other circumstances where there isn't a specific provision for it. Uh, But people should know it's not optional uh, when the Public Health Act directs, you know, there's a direction under that act to do something. uh, If you don't comply with it, not surprisingly, there's a mechanism to get enforcement. Uh, and so uh, ultimately now the expectation would be if they tried to open up, the RCMP are going to show up and make sure that that doesn't occur. Uh, and so please follow the Public Health Act uh, if you want to continue to operate your business in a safe fashion. Good advice. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Stay safe and have a great day. All right. Until next week.